Well, as we've seen in both Luke and Matthew, as we've been studying through the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes and these overlapping accounts by those two authors, uh, we've noticed they really adjure Christians uh, to delay rewards, delay awards until the future kingdom of God. And while we're here, they prepare us to expect a rejection in this life, as we saw last week, as we bear the reproach of the name of Christ. The gospel, it's a stinging offense to humanity. It really is. Uh, The fact that we are so evil at our heart that God had to send His Son and to die on a cross, a horrific death for our sins. To those who are perishing, that's foolishness. Foolish message to them, but to those who are hearing it, receiving it, being saved, it is the power of God that leads to salvation. It's a sweet aroma of salvation, the message that we bear. But Christians realize our message, it's offensive to people. Uh, Culture says all the time that you're good, you're very, very good. The Bible says otherwise. Our message is offensive since Jesus tells this assembly, this gathering, uh, it's a blessing when people scorn us. When you suffer the rebuke, uh, people hate you for the sake of Christ's name. And, and he tells us that we'll actually receive a great reward in heaven for our courageous testimony. You know, it might be tempting for us to look at that and say, well, you know, that, that's kind of a good thing. We could adopt a martyr complex. Mistakenly think that, well, it's good to go out and stir it up a bit. As if, you know, we might, should go out and just simply uh, translate the gospel, give the gospel to people in a manner that, that's hard to accept. Be offensive in our approach, you know, if, there, if we suffer, uh, suffer rebuke or from the culture for that, that's a good thing. And folks, we, we find that today. We do find people going by the name of Christ that are acting in that way. They, they'll even record themselves on video, going to college campuses and, and getting very vocal and abusive and offensive and even hurl insults at the student body, trying to provoke a conversation. You can find that all over YouTube and the internet, and as if somehow that's going to uh, cause these students to like them. We all know the types of sins that college students get involved with. What they need to know is they can be forgiven for those sins through faith in Christ. Um, Supposedly to insult someone, it might be a good approach, but it's not. If you get into a huge battle of words, or worse, you haven't done your good duty for Jesus Christ. No, if you go in with an attitude like that, it's more likely you've dishonored the name of Jesus. Christians are described as ambassadors of reconciliation who bear the good news, not insults. I think it's 1 Peter 3, it says, Do not exchange evil for evil, or insult for insult, but give a blessing instead. 2 Timothy 2, verse 24, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God might grant them the repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, right? That's why Jesus also said on this occasion, Blessed are the peacemakers, 
Servants of Christ are, are characterized as peacemakers. We're peacemakers. Not only between God and man, as we proclaim the gospel to them, the reconciliation through the cross, but also between man and man. This is where Luke's logical argument advances uh, so that he won't be misunderstood. And in order to make peace between man and man, where would you first start? Who would you start with, logically? Yourself. You start with yourself, even ourselves, even with our own enemies. That's where we begin reading from verse 27. Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good. And lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, the first lesson I'd, I'd like us to note in this passage is the enormous value of context. Enormous value of context. You've probably heard it said that context is king in Bible interpretation. That is true, but really context is essential in anything you read. If I were to write uh, to Eric, for example, a personal letter, a page or several pages, and and he were to share with you uh, a sentence out of that, or, or even a part or a portion of a sentence of that letter, do you think you'd know what I was talking to him about? Probably not. Unlikely. Same reason that pull quotes used today uh, on the so-called news, which is really a lot more commentary. But pull quotes used in the news, you really don't know uh, what the context is. But they can light a fire. They can usually get you worked up. But usually those pull quotes are quite unreliable if they don't represent the context accurately. For our example here in this passage... Have you ever had someone tell you that if you're a Christian, if you're a good Christian, you should just give to everyone who asks? Verse 30. Especially if it's within your ability to do so. No questions asked. Just give to anybody who asks. And and they sound quite super spiritual as they give that advice, suggesting that. Um, Brian is over there. I, I don't expect that you would sign over the family business if someone just asked. Would you? You mean you don't take the Bible literally? No, that's not what we're looking at here. Um, Folks, if someone takes my car, whether I loan it or they just take it, and they don't return it, 
I tell you what, I'm calling the police and I'm going to demand it back, right? And blindly giving to just anyone who asks, ignores, actually contradicts the greater context of the Bible. Lessons, broad principles found throughout the Bible that warn us to use discernment. Discernment before being taken advantage of. And and other principles that are commanding us uh, to be responsible for our own lives. Paul says, for example, in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10, if anyone is not willing to work, not willing to work, then he's not either to eat, right? Personal responsibility. That verse is interpreted and presented to you appropriately in context because that passage is talking about laziness. People who weren't willing to work. You wouldn't blindly give to them. Scripture tells you not to. Um, So when giving... We have to discern who's too lazy to work and who actually needs the money. Who actually is in a desperate situation. Who's in genuine need. Using verse 30 of our passage today uh, to suggest blind charity uh, without any questions, that not only ignores the, the greater context of the Bible, what the Bible teaches, the spirit of the Bible, it also completely ignores the immediate context. The passage itself that we find around verse 30. So always remember to check the context, what is, what's being said. At the front of this passage, in verse 27, we're told to love a type of person. Who would that be? Our enemies, right? At the rear of this passage, in verse 35, we're again told to, some, to love someone. Our enemies, again. So this entire lesson, it's sandwiched at the beginning and at the end with a command by Christ to love our enemies. It's speaking about enemies. That's our immediate context here. The passage is primarily talking about handling and managing relationships with enemies. That's our context. It's not describing foreign armies. That's not in view. It's not describing someone you just happen to meet on the street. For the first time. No, it, it it's primarily indicates people that we already know. They already know us. We're in serious ongoing conflict with the party. We visualize their faces in our minds, you know, when we think about them and, and, and we identify them as enemies. They have something against us. We have something against them. They're not a close friend. Verses 27 and 28 reveal this passage is describing people, quote, who hate us, who curse us, and they mistreat or abuse or revile us. They know us, but they don't like us. And observing verse 29, we should discern that that Christ here, he, he's brushing broad strokes. A couple examples for broad principles. Doesn't, isn't only talking about your coat, for instance. Say, well, I've never had a problem with a coat. Well, it's not limited to your coat. You understand what I'm saying? It's broad principles. First, we, we see in verse 29, there are people who will physically intimidate us. They're the bullies. They're the bullies. It reads, whoever hits you on the cheek... Actually, the Greek could, could also be interpreted, whoever strikes you on the jaw. It's violent. So whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. The command 
here, folks, it's for our well-being. That's what it's about. It's about our well-being. It is to minimize any escalation that might erupt from our response, from our retaliation. Most would want to stand up and clock the guy, right? That's what our flesh would want us to do. Stand up and clock the guy harder. Then he goes and gets his friends to come back. And, and then you're forced to go involve your friends and come back. And, and the whole situation gets out of control. You end up getting a free tour of the city in a squad car. Is that a good end result? No, escalation. Is that good for anybody? It's not good for anybody. We have some people here that have been on the police force before. Uh, We think, wow, this doesn't describe any of us. Um, Gigi, are domestic disputes between family members and close friends, is that a big problem? A big problem. People punching each other, striking one another, getting hauled away. Their families then having to endure uh, the legal ramifications. There's nothing good in that type of situation very common today what would have been a better response for everybody involved both you and your enemy de-escalation de-escalation turn the other cheek don't strike back turn away christians christians aren't known and aren't to be known as violent people we're not violent people the second example jesus provides right after that it's quite thought-provoking says, whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Noticed that there's emphasis uh, of force. There's force involved in this. If your enemy takes away your coat forcibly, then don't withhold your inner garment, your shirt either. One typically reliable resource I read suggests this could be a picture of a street robbery. That uh, uh, if so, it'd be wise to de-escalate the situation, not resist the attacker. You know, you want my wallet here? Yeah, do you need need my car keys too? I I don't think that's the direction the text goes. I'm going to go a different route for a couple reasons. First, the context suggests a person, a personal enemy you know. You or I know. That's what it's talking about. Someone who we know, uh, rather than a street robbery by someone we've never met. Add to that, this is good, Matthew 5, verse 40, if you want to look at this later. Add to that Matthew's account of this event where he references the shirt and and Matthew describes the situation as a lawsuit. It's a lawsuit. Matthew records that Jesus also said on the same occasion, if anyone sues you for your shirt, let him have your coat also. So between these two uh, accounts, we get a picture. Remember, Luke doesn't record everything that Jesus said, and Matthew doesn't record everything that Jesus said. I mean, you look at this sermon right here in Luke, it's a very short section. That doesn't contain everything that Jesus said on that day. He didn't give sermonettes. He didn't raise up Christianettes. He gave meat. So my impression is that, that Jesus' first example in verse 29 describes a physical intimidation, someone who strikes you. The second example is legal coercion. Somebody's threatening to take you to the judge. This is why I chose to read uh, from Scripture earlier, Matthew uh, 5, verse 21. 
Is it possible for a Christian to innocently get drug into the courts? Well, you bet it is. And I think that's the situation here in Luke. Again, it indicates you become a victim. One man was struck, another person is being drug, drug into court. But Matthew 5.21, in, in another illustration, Jesus also suggests from this same time period, from, likely from this same sermon, that a believer could be taken to court because they're actually at fault. They're actually guilty of what has been charged. And it's up to the believer then to go and make up, make sure it doesn't escalate. So absolutely, we can be at fault. Anybody doubt that? But what would be Jesus' advice regardless of whether you're guilty or whether you're innocent? Settle. Settle. Settle quickly. The enemy threatens to sue you for your shirt. If it's necessary in order to settle the dispute quickly, give me a coat. Give him your coat. Take my coat. You can say, I'm sorry, does that make us square now? Are we square? Do you, do you also need my shirt? Is that going to help the situation? Has anybody ever here, don't raise your hands, has anybody ever been drugged into a legal or a civil court situation? Well, it's not fun. It's not fun. You don't want to be there. The lawyers, folks, they're, they're really, they're going to get both your coat and your shirt. You probably already know that. I, I assure you. The better advice would be for us de-escalation of the conflict. Settle, folks. Settle. Do it quickly. That, that sure gives a different angle on the old adage that that man will give you the shirt off his back. Of course he will. He wants to reconcile. He wants to restore peace as a peacemaker. Though it was costly in those days, it was an expensive element for people. Jesus is speaking here of things like clothes that are easily replaced. Easily replaced in your life. Don't overanalyze this passage and miss the spirit of Christ. Folks, don't let the enemy suck you into a situation into small claims court or before a judge over petty disputes. It will cost you more in the end than just settling. Just settling. It's not worth it. That good advice? People say the Bible isn't practical. Folks, that's practical. That is good advice. Thirdly, verse 30, give to everyone who asks of you Whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Then verse 31, the golden rule. Do unto others the same way you want them to treat you. And I believe this climaxes at lending to your enemies. Look at verse 34. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. That's why verse 30 says, give to everyone. Give to everyone. We quickly give to friends, right? But so we strictly withhold from enemies. We don't give to them, we'll give to friends. In doing so, we're going to see in a couple of verses that we're missing out on a, on a huge opportunity here, all right? Jesus indicates we are to apply our generosity equally to everyone. 
Friends or foe when you're helping someone out? If you're willing to lend it, you're probably willing to lose it, right? Usually. Usually. When I lend out something like a power tool or, or, or something like that, even if it's not an enemy, uh, I, I pretty much recognize there's a chance it might not come back, right? You might not get it back. The same would hold true for money. Not alms we're talking here. We're talking about lending someone who needs it. Or goods. Most of us lend what we can afford to lose when it comes to those type of things without endangering our livelihood or our family's livelihood. Actually, to do that, to lend foolishly, that would contradict other parts of Scripture. We're not talking about lending foolishly. But if someone were in desperate need and you had the ability, you would lend it to a friend, right? Sure you would. Sure you would. And you anticipate that you'd get it back. Is that generosity? No, that's reciprocity. You think you're going to get it back. You know what Jesus said? Even sinners do that. Even sinners do that. How about when the enemy knocks on the door in desperate need? Would you lend the same way to them? Or would you and I treat them differently? We might think to ourselves, you know, it looks like their need is legitimate. I don't know if I'm going to get back. This guy doesn't like me. They're my enemy. Jesus says, lend it anyway. Lend it anyway. The same way as if that person were your friend. Apply the principle equally. Do unto others the same way you would have them do unto you if you were in a desperate situation. If you were in a pinch, folks, and the only person that could help you in your situation were an enemy, and you had to ask them no other choice, you'd want them to do unto you what you should be commanded to do unto them, right? Love your enemy. Love your enemy. So we would want them to obey the golden rule. Thus we have to obey the golden rule. We treat everyone the same, folks, with compassion and love. Jesus isn't saying you have to give away the farm, but he does insist you don't treat your enemies with less compassion than you would your friends. Want more proof? Follow along as I read from verse 31. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. Jesus says, love your enemies. Here's his logic. Verse 32, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. Then verse 35, here's the main point. But love your enemies. And do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, right? Your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For He Himself too is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your God is merciful. Is that good stuff? When we love our enemies, even though they don't love us, we look just like Jesus. 
If we display love only towards our friend and friends and mercy only towards our friends, we look like the world. That's what the world does. Reciprocity. When we are merciful and lend to our enemies and make peace with them, rather than escalating the conflicts, we become peacemakers who will be known sons of the Most High God. And we'll be rewarded for it. We'll be rewarded for it. You want to see something I think spectacular? Luke says we'll be sons of the Most High God if we de-escalate, we treat our enemies well. In Matthew's list of the Beatitudes at the beginning, in chapter 5 and verse 9, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Same principle. Same principle. De-escalating conflict and loving our enemies, it's not only good for us, it's very important for them. Very important for them. Because they don't receive, typically, that type of compassion from the world. Love from their enemies. They, they don't see that. Verse 35 concerns our Christian testimony. How they're viewing us as Christians. We look different from the world because we look, look like our Father in heaven. We don't look like the culture. We're kind to ungrateful and evil men, just as God is. How then can't we seize that opportunity to stand apart from the world? It'd be better to be wronged than to miss that opportunity to love an enemy. Seeking revenge, demanding that reciprocity or conditions of lending Lord, to expect that from a dead, spiritually dead, fallen world, to expect them to be able to live like Christians, to live like the Holy Spirit asks us to live. Lord, even anticipate that. That doesn't look like Jesus. They can't. Unless they be born again, then they at least have the ability for the Spirit to fight back against the flesh, right? What we're trying to do. Jesus didn't demand that. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth while being reviled. He did not return revile. While suffering, he uttered no no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds we were healed. Christ was the peacemaker, folks. He was a peacemaker between God and men. And as they nailed him to the cross, as they hurled insults at him, he said, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. He loved his enemies, even us. Even us. And he made peace through the blood of the cross, which opened up the door to salvation. We look just like Jesus when making peace between God and man through the gospel. As we speak the gospel and as we personally escort them to the door. What door? Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. Folks, we help them find the door. Even the enemies, we help find the door. For the door is narrow that leads to life. There are few who find it. How, how wide is the door to eternal life? Right about the width, width of a man's shoulders. One man, Jesus is the door. 
We, we too were once his enemies before knowing Christ. Now he calls us friends. We do the same for the sake of our enemies. Friend, could I show you to the door? Could I show you the door that is Jesus Christ? And we start showing them the door first by treating them as we would a friend. Can I show you one last thing? I think it will kind of wrap this up. Romans 12. Beginning in verse 14, similar instruction from the Apostle Paul to the church. He says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. And for in doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Listen how this closes. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's the principle. Bless those who persecute you. Never pay back evil for evil. De-escalate, right? Do what is right. Be at peace with all men. Don't take your own revenge on the enemy. If there's going to be any vengeance, it's not up to us. That is up to God. Entirely up to God. Vengeance is the Lord's. Obviously, appropriate would be prayers our prayers for our enemies, that they will never see any vengeance. That's our prayer for them, that they'd come to know the Lord, that they'd be one to Christ so they'll escape the day of judgment. That's how we are to view our enemies. That's how we're to love our enemies. And here I'm going to expose what I believe is a common misunderstanding. You can disagree with this. That's fine. But I believe this is a common misunderstanding about this passage. Paul's not motivating us to do good in order to get some kind of warped thrill that at the day of judgment, you know, hot coals are going to be poured on our enemy's head to get an ultimate feeling of revenge. That's our flesh, folks. That's our flesh that seeks revenge. We're to be seeking our enemies to be one to Christ. So I don't think revenge is at all the spirit of this verse or of this passage by Paul or Scripture or the Bible itself, uh, or other teachings of Jesus were, uh, throughout the Bible. I don't think that's the Spirit. Verse 20, as you look at it in uh, Romans 12, or excuse me, um, yeah, in, in verse 20, where it says, um, heaping the coals on his head, that part of the verse, it's a direct quote from Proverbs 25, verse 22. There King Solomon adds, that in recompense for heaping burning coals on your enemy's head, the Lord will reward you for doing that. What type of work do we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that we will be rewarded for? For building Christ's church, right? 
for adding to his number, for witnessing to him. Each man's labor is going to be rewarded. Two things. Christians don't get inspired over doling out judgment, over seeing others suffer. And by the way, God doesn't need our help with that. He can handle that. The judgment's all on him. He's the judge. He's the righteous judge. We're the unrighteous judge. We have too many preconceptions and other things to be a perfect judge. He's the judge. There's a healthier understanding to this passage. These verses that I believe surfaces as you look at it. It's going to disappoint some of you who are really looking forward to the judgment day and you get to see your enemy and his hair's all singed and everything. This might disappoint you. You might not agree with me. But folks, fire and burning coals are pictures of God's judgment in the Bible, but they also symbolize something else. Purity and the refining power of God. The process of refining. In that culture, in that day, that Jesus is speaking, and previous and for quite some time afterwards, where everything from heat for your family to cooking depended on a continuous fire in your home, Hot coals were also, in a very practical sense, life-preserving and life-giving. If your fire went out, especially in the wintertime, it spelt trouble. It spelt trouble. If you returned home in, in winter after traveling or after a day's work, and, and your embers had turned cold, had cur- turned dark, restarting the fire in those days wasn't that easy. Especially if it was damp and cold out. When, when a person needed to start a fresh fire in those conditions for cooking or for heating, they, they didn't, just didn't reach for lighter fluid in a bick, you know, to light it up. They couldn't do that. Especially in damp conditions. In any conditions. What they would more likely do is they would visit a neighbor's door. A neighbor who probably had smoke coming out the top of their home. And, and they would... Uh, knock on the door. And they would ask neighbor, could I have some of your coals? Could I have some of your coals? Can, I, can you help me rekindle my fire? Can you help me provide what I need? They had pots designed for this of different styles for carrying these coals, transporting coals from one fire to start another fire. They didn't, they didn't carry a hot pan of coals or a clay pot of coals in their chest. They didn't carry it in front of them right here. They carried it up on their head. If your enemy came to your door and their fire went out, they couldn't cook, they couldn't stay warm, what are you going to do? You're going to offer them a, well, here's a little lukewarm coal. Should have your fire started and, you know, if you blow on it good in a couple hours. not as a peacemaker to win your enemy Christian would provide everything that they need you'd offer them food if they're hungry if they're thirsty you'd give them something to drink if your enemy needed a fire you'd be a good neighbor you'd take from your fire you wouldn't take a little bit from your fire you'd take a lot from your fire you'd take the hottest coals from your fire and you would heap those hot burning coals up where he could carry them home on his head You'd do it even if it meant that your fire is going to die down for a short period of time. You would sacrifice for their well-being. 
Most reputable commentaries recognize this illustration of heaping coals on top of someone's head in this culture would have been symbolic of an act of kindness. Not all of them, but many of the very reputable contact, uh, um, commentaries. Not just a few coals, but you're heaping hot coals that would have permit, permitted them to start their fire up just like that. That's loving your enemy. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. And they'd be thankful to you for it. They'd previously spoken badly about you, said that bad things to the neighbors about you. Well, that wouldn't be quite as easy for them now going forward, would it? In fact, it might even shame them a little bit. You treated them so well and they misrepresented you so badly. They might even wonder what it is about you, what it is about your God that caused you to pile up them coals so high. God might kindle a fire in their heart. What's the overarching lesson? Folks, don't perpetuate revenge. Don't escalate it. Give your enemy what they need. Lend to them like you would a friend. Pour on the hot coals of generosity, folks. Pour it on. Stoke their fire hot for God. Make them wonder when you're lending to them, what makes you so at peace with that decision? When they borrow something and you aren't nagging them 12 hours later, where'd my power drill goes? Lend, love, give, provide for your enemy. Do good to your enemies. Never take revenge. Make peace. Do unto them. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. And your reward in heaven will be great. And you will be called the sons of the Most High God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Let's pray.